Well, good morning, ladies. It is great to see you all again and great to see some new faces who weren't here last night. Um, I'm so excited about today, and look, the sun has come out and is shining, so that rainy weather that I brought is disappearing, Lord willing. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to read Second John once again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us today, that by your Holy Spirit you would inspire us to understand what it means to walk in the truth, to love one another, and to watch out so that we keep pressing on towards heaven. Help us not to lose sight of these wonderful truths and use them to transform our lives, to reflect you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Second John. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now, I don't know about you, but our family loves the Olympics. We aren't in an Olympic year this year, but we love everything about them. We love the idea of the opening ceremonies, and then when we're about an hour in, we realize that they're actually not quite so fun as we remembered them to be. (laughs) But we do love the different events. We love the gymnastics. We love the swimming, the diving, the field soccer, the rugby sevens. Everybody in our house has a sport that they are rooting for. And the great thing in our house is that there are two countries that we're cheering on. So that doubles the potential for a gold. <laughs> but the dedication of these athletes is something to be admired and definitely respected. The whole of their lives is gearing up towards this big event, the Olympics. And they have been training, and they have organized their whole lives focused on this one prize, the gold medal, the ultimate reward. reward. 
And the discipline and single-minded nature of these athletes is something that I don't think I have in order to be able to achieve that goal. And it made me think about the team sports in particular because those athletes are all working together. They are working for the purpose of a gold medal, but it isn't just them that they are depending on. There are other people in their team. So take the swimming relays, for example, or the running relays. Those team events can have a mishap. One person can become injured, or they can drop the baton, or something can happen, which means that the hope of the gold is lost, not for the one person who dropped the baton, but for the whole team that has been working together. They have lost their chance for the most coveted and revered award in the world. But when it all works together, and they win that gold, and they accomplish that goal, it is really fun to see the celebration and the joy on their faces as they stand on that podium, as their national anthem plays, and as those flags are raised. They have accomplished that goal that they have been working for. We're going to see in our passage today that Jesus is the ultimate prize. Jesus is the gold medal. And when we come to verse 8, we will see that we are to win a full reward in Jesus. We're going to look at verses 4 to 8. So I'm going to read those verses again so we can focus our minds in on just these ones. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. We're going to take away three points from our text this morning. Our first point, walk in the truth, verse 4. Walk in the truth, verse 4. Our second point, love one another, verses 5 to 6. Love one another, verses 5 to 6. And our final point, watch yourselves, verses 7 to 8. Watch yourselves. Walk in the truth. Love one another. Watch yourselves. These verses follow directly on from what we talked about yesterday, where we learned that the truth of Christ abides in believers forever. And we're going to see that word abide again during the day today. But having the truth abiding in us doesn't mean that we always live life the way that we need to all the time, because we're sinful. In these next few verses, John explains how Christians can learn to walk in the truth, our first point, verse 4. And we read in verse 4 that John has clearly heard or has personally met some of the members of this congregation. He's encouraged, he's rejoicing greatly about these people because these children, as he refers to them, are walking in the truth. 
So this is a progression from yesterday, isn't it, where the truth was abiding in them. These believers are walking in the truth, and John is encouraged because by doing this, these believers are being obedient. They were commanded to walk in this truth by God himself. I wonder if it was talking to these believers that inspired John to write to him, to the church, if things came up in conversation that gave him joy, but also gave him concern. And so he wanted to write to them, even though we know later in the letter he really desires to come and be with them, I wonder if he felt that some of these things were important enough that he wanted to write to them and bring them to their attention. If you remember back to verse 3 from last night, we talked a lot about the truth and knowing the truth and that truth abiding us in us forever in verses 1 to 3. These believers that John met were faithful. They were doing just that. They were doing exactly what John was exhorting them to in the first three verses. They were living in a manner commanded by God that was pleasing to him. Notice the verb that he uses here as he talks about it. They are walking in the truth. The word walking creates an image of motion. They aren't stationary. They are doing something. They are going somewhere. It's an active verb. It's not a passive one. This walking in the truth isn't something that just happens to these believers. It's active. It's effort. It is something that they are consciously doing. And it requires something on their part. It requires something on the part of the person doing the walking. These believers that he refers to here understand the gospel. And they are trying to live their daily lives in the light of that, in response to their understanding of it. By walking in the truth, they are actively living out God's promises They are actively living out his commands in a practical way. And they are able to do that because that truth is abiding in them. They are exhibiting these characteristics that we talked about last night of grace and mercy and peace to others. They are living the promise that John lays out in verse 3 for all to see. And these things apply to us today. Walking in the truth is something that we need to do as believers ourselves. If you have done any kind of study in the New Testament, you will notice verbs like walk and run, persevere. All these different things come up again and again and again. It shows us that there is exercise required, that there is a response on our part. These things don't just happen to us. We need to be actively seeking these things. We can't ask somebody else to go on a walk for us, can we? We need to do it ourselves. Each person individually has this responsibility. We shouldn't be standing still. We should be progressing forwards in this, not not staying in the same place. But it's all very well to say to each other, I encourage you to walk in the truth. But that sounds a bit odd, really, doesn't it? What does that actually mean when I wake up in the morning I'm going to walk in the truth today. What does that look like? Well, let's look at our text and see if we can figure out what John is meaning 
by using these words. He's rejoicing, as we just said in verse 4, due to the fact that these believers are being faithful. They are walking in the truth. So that's a very good place for us to start, I think, as we ask the question, what does walking in the truth mean for us? Well, these believers are walking in the truth. They are walking in God's word. So then we can come to the conclusion that spending time in God's word, spending time in prayer, is something that needs to happen. But that takes effort. It takes discipline. Think back to those athletes we were talking about who trained for the Olympics. There is discipline involved here on the part of the believer. Some days it is really hard for us to take the time to read our Bible and to pray, which is a bit of an oxymoron when you think about all the things that you have found time to do in your day. But somehow, having the discipline of reading God's Word and spending time meditating on it seems very, very difficult. But in order to walk in the truth faithfully, this is what it means. It does take effort. When we become Christians, the Holy Spirit transforms our lives. And as we begin to spend time reading God's Word and praying and spending time with other believers in community, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and we turn from it. We desire to be transformed and to become more like Jesus. And as a result of that, we begin to display godly characteristics that can be seen by others. John calls those the fruits of the Spirit, doesn't he? Those characteristics, as the Holy Spirit is convicting our hearts, begin to show on the inside and the outside. They are evident but it is hard. It's a lifelong process, and it's messy. It gets complicated. We read in John chapter 15 that God prunes us as we strive to bear fruit and display these godly characteristics. Now, I am not a gardener. Anybody who gives me anything living in the plant form, it usually dies. I'm much better with cut flowers. But my husband loves to garden. He is really good. In, in fact, we have this lemon tree that's on its last legs at the moment, and every day it loses another leaf. And the kids and I are very pessimistic about this lemon tree, but he has pruned it. He's cut all the leaves off that he thinks are dead, and he has great optimistic hope that this lemon tree is just going to have a new lease of life when the weather warms up. It's inside my house dropping leaves at the moment. So all that to say we, if we are gardeners, know that sometimes we need to hack great chunks of things off our plants in order for them to be able to grow and bear fruit. And that is what walking in the truth is. John 15, 7 says, if you abide in me, there's this wonderful word abide again, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is what walking in the truth means, to have godly character, to be reading God's word, to be praying and meditating on those things, to have his words living and remaining in us so that when we do have to stop and pray in the moment because our mouths are about 
to display our sinful character, we can pray that those words would be replaced by the godly words that we have been hiding in our hearts, that we have been trying to hang on to. By this, the Father is glorified. Seek to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Make sure that you are in Bible studies with each other. If you're at college, get some friends who you know are believers together if there's nothing offered, or go to a Bible study that is already set up. If you are at work every day, pray for another believer and maybe read God's word and pray with them. Support one another. Make sure that you are doing that together. We talked yesterday about accountability. Just doing this by ourselves isn't enough, as we will see as we work through this letter. Doing it in community together and learning to sit under God's word and to be steeped in his truths, to abide in them. There is a richness when we do this together as a community. Now, look at verse 5. It says, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is our second point. Love one another, verses 5 to 6. Love is active. It is a word we overuse in many incorrect ways, but when we look at God's word, we can see what true love really is. It's a characteristic in our lives, and it is something we choose to do or not to do. It is a practical outworking of God's commands, putting them into action. And this love that John is talking about here builds on walking in the truth. It is connected. John is asking this congregation to love one another. Why does he tell them to do this? Well, he tells them he isn't presenting a new idea to them, doesn't he? This commandment is one that they have had from the beginning. They've already known it. So at this point, we need to find out what John is referring to. So turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. John 13, verses 34 to 35. And look what Jesus is saying. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. At this point in John, Jesus is giving important information to his disciples. He is about to die, and he is predicting that Judas is going to betray him. He predicts Peter's denial of him and all these events that lead up to his death. And even though they don't understand, and even though they insist that, of course, they're not going to do any of these things that Jesus is saying, Jesus needs to pass this important information onto them. He needs his disciples to know that this new commandment that he is giving them This commandment to love one another is very important in regards to carrying the work on after he dies. It is key. But the thing is, it actually is not a new idea. Because way back in Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18, 
God tells the Israelites through Moses that they need to love and love their neighbors as themselves. Coming back to this commandment, we see that Jesus' disciples are to be marked by this love for one another. Jesus taught them they needed to love their enemies. And as he displays in his death on the cross, this kind of love that he is talking about isn't a red heart. It isn't a kiss, kiss. This is something very, very different that Jesus is talking about. This kind of love is transformational. It's sacrificial. It's the kind of love that can take you to death. If we move on in John's gospel from chapter 15 to chapter 15, verse 13, we read this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is the kind of love that Jesus is teaching his disciples about. And remember, John was there when he was teaching it. This is the kind of love that John is explaining needs to be present in the lives of these believers in this congregation in our letter of 2 John. This is very intense, isn't it? This has gone far deeper than the Mosaic law does because there's a deeper cost here that Jesus is showing us. Because by showing this kind of love, others will know who this congregation is following. They will see the truth for themselves because it will be evident, it will be displayed in their lives. By showing this kind of love, people will be able to see who Jesus' disciples are following. This is what walking in the truth and loving one another This is what it means. This is what it means for us. I wanted to share a story with you of a time when we lived in England. My husband traveled often, and we had just had our third baby, and unfortunately, he needed to travel, and my parents were not able to help us. And I want to say that my newborn was about two weeks old, and I developed mastitis, which for any of you, yes, I see somebody groaning, um, For any of you who have been unfortunate enough to have mastitis, you will know it is extremely painful. So there I was. I had three children under the age of three or four or something, this newborn baby, raging fever. My whole body hurts. I was absolutely miserable. Well, I did talk to my husband on the phone, and he just felt horrible that he was away. He couldn't get back. My parents were away. So he phoned this couple in our church who were older, We were guardians to their teenage children at the time. They were on vacation up north in Leeds, so about four hours away. He explained the situation. They came right to my house. She put me to bed. She made homemade fries for my children. (laughs) There was McDonald's down the street. She made homemade fries for my children. She tidied up. She put on a load of laundry. She played with my kids. She loved on them. She held the baby. And that is what I'm talking about. They were four hours away on vacation, but because they loved us and they knew that we needed help, they abandoned what they had planned to do because that's what believers do in Christ. And it was such an enormous blessing to me at the time. I don't know how I would have got through that day 
if they hadn't have shown up at my door. And of course, I felt horrible that they had abandoned their plans, but this is what we do for each other. This is what showing love to one another means. Now, people who aren't believers don't tend to do that for one another. So to be able then to explain to my non-Christian friends that this is what this couple had done for me in my hour of need was also unbelievable to them. But this is the kind of love that John is exhorting this congregation to have for one another. This is the kind of love that we need to be challenged about as we read this text. This is the kind of love that we need to have in our minds as we wake up in the morning and pray, Lord, if I need to change my plans today in order to be able to love somebody, show me how I do that. And furthermore, help me to be willing to. We don't like to abandon our plans, do we? We don't like things not quite to go our way. But this is what this transformational, sacrificial love looks like. But it doesn't happen if we don't have eyes to see it. We need to thoughtfully pray about what this looks like in our congregations. It might even be something so small. I have a lot of young mums in my congregation who really struggle in the winter. They have young kids. There's nowhere really to go. When daffodils come around, it's really fun to go and give them a bunch. Trader Joe's sells them really cheaply. That's a very small thing, isn't it? But it lights up somebody's day. It doesn't have to be a big ta-da. It sometimes can be such a little thing as bringing somebody a coffee and saying, I was thinking of you today and I was praying for you. Or texting them saying, I know you're having a hard week. I just wanted to know this, you to know this is what I prayed for you today. I'm not sure if any of you in this room have ever experienced being on the receiving end of that, but boy, does it make a difference. And you know what else it does? It makes you want to do the same for other people. And that grows love for one another. There is a very intoxicating effect. Everybody then wants to learn to look outside of themselves and to serve one another. That is what Jesus was trying to explain to his disciples. This is what John is telling us. And the fact that he is bringing up love and the need to remember this important central command, the greatest command, implies that this church might just need a nudge in that direction. Some of them are doing this, he tells us. But it does make us wonder whether perhaps some of them aren't. This love is the greatest commandment of all. Look in verse 6. Just in case they aren't quite sure what he's meaning and could avoid addressing the issue, he spells it out for them, doesn't he? Look at this in verse 6. And this is love. Okay, just in case you don't know what it is, this is what it is. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. He is being very plain and very clear in his language, lest we misunderstand. There are no excuses for this church here. He could not be more clear. They have known this from the very beginning, and they need to walk in it. They need to walk in the commandments 
of the gospel and the commandments of God. This is not a choice. This is an act of obedience. This is not a choice. Because if they are truly regenerate, their hearts are going to want to do this. Their hearts are going to want to be obedient to the commandments of God. And by doing that, there will be unity, not discord. There will be a linking of arms and sacrificial living for one another, just like we were talking about. So we do need to take these verses seriously for ourselves. We need to take them to heart. We need to pray about them. We need to take it very, very seriously. We need to ask the question, does my life reflect this? Am I faithfully doing this? Do I have this on my heart as I wake up in the morning? Perhaps it might mean welcoming somebody into your home more often. Perhaps it might mean being willing, like we just said, to adjust our schedule to show love. It might mean, and don't all panic when I say this, but it might mean stepping back from church for a while to spend time with your family. I had a conversation with somebody today about that. And they have been honoring their family this year. Praise God, that is showing love. Whatever it is, it's going to look differently for each one of us. And I tell you this, it will look different for every season of life that we're in. But we need to have that attitude of prayer as we wake up in the mornings to understand what living and loving looks like sacrificially for us today, not in the future, for us today. Unfortunately, when we don't have this, it can create huge problems in our churches. And many churches have had horrible splits and have been divided because this love that John is talking about is not present there. The grace and the mercy and the peace is not extended. John is giving these believers the reminder that they must have the right focus, that they must not be passive. So, therefore, must we think about these things too. As members of this church, you will have a God-given opportunity to practice And when you don't get it right, you have a God-given opportunity to show grace. Isn't that amazing? This is an opportunity, ladies. It is not a burden. It is an opportunity to live and to love sacrificially together, to carry each other's burdens. It will be hard. It will be really messy. It will be hurtful. But we actually just need to get over ourselves in those areas and we need to do it anyway. We need to forgive quickly, and we need to ask for forgiveness. And we need to be open and vulnerable that we aren't going to do it well, but we're all trying. And what a joy and a privilege that is. My goodness. Do take this opportunity seriously. You will be astonished by the fruit that you see, and you will be astonished at the blessings that will abound when you abide in God's truths, and when you live sacrificially and love one another in this way. Because this is love. And this is what it looks like. Now, it's interesting. We were commanded to walk in this truth by God. 
And it is really important that we do this as a church community. So as we love each other more and as we serve each other sacrificially, it's really important that we do this as a community because as John goes on to say, there are going to be times when our understanding of God's truth is challenged. And we are going to need to be of one mind as believers when that happens. There are going to be times when we have to hold up the standard of the gospel and weigh teachings against it and see if they really are truth. So in those instances, it is of highest importance that we have wiser, godly believers that we are all in community with. It is imperative that we are able to talk to one another and see where these teachings match up to the gospel and where they don't. Because we need to watch ourselves. John tells us this, our third point, verses 7 to 8. The reason John is explaining about love and talking to the church about why it is so important is revealed to us in verses 7 to 8. I don't know if you picked this up when we were reading it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. The nature of the word deceiver carries a very heavy weight. And deceit is the opposite of truth. But we were saying yesterday, the problem with deceit is that often it masquerades as truth. It can be very close, but yet it is totally deceitful. The two truths and a lie yesterday. There was a grain of truth in my lie, but it wasn't the truth. That can't be trusted because it promises something that isn't real truth, and this is not from God. John is warning the church here in these verses of that very thing. There are those who have gone out into the world who don't believe that Christ came here and lived on this earth in the flesh. They do not believe that he died and rose again. Anybody who believes that is working against Christ. And that's what John means when he uses this word antichrist. We often think of the antichrist as this one very scary person. But actually, from here and from John's gospel, we can see that anybody who is against Christ's teaching, anybody who is antichrist, we can attach that title to them. So there are many antichrists in the world, and here John is warning the church about them, and we need to watch out ourselves because there will be situations, like we've said, which will masquerade as the gospel but will not have the full pieces of the gospel present. It will certainly have pieces of the gospel attached, but there will be parts missing, which is why it is so important that we abide in God's word so we have eyes to see which of the pieces of the gospel might not be there. Deceit is subtle. Satan, our enemy, is very, very clever. If you have never read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, I really encourage you to read them. That is an excellent example of what I am talking about here. Satan is clever, but the gospel is clear. 
So I wanted to give just some practical ways of how we can measure teaching. Because sometimes we do have to, in that moment, decide for ourselves. We don't necessarily have time to phone a friend. So here are some ways that you can do this. If you want to check out a new teaching, an author, some kind of new movement that you might be interested in, ask yourself if the gospel is being proclaimed clearly in its entirety. Ask yourself what pieces might not be present. So one very good question to ask yourself is this, does the teaching bring glory to God or is it all about me? If it's all about me, it's not the gospel because the gospel is about Jesus. It is about God and his glory. So if any teaching is telling you, you have the power to do this for yourself, that is not the gospel because the gospel clearly tells us that we need Jesus. We don't have the power to save ourselves. Now, one thing I have found that is often missing in anything that is masquerading as the gospel is the cost of following Jesus. The cost is often not present. So the price that Jesus paid on the cross for us may be present a little, but the cost of us turning from our sin and the cost of us in this life having to endure suffering for Christ is very rarely mentioned. If the cost is not there, this is probably something that is masquerading as the gospel. That's why we need Jesus. Don't blindly agree with people, even people that you trust. Do search for websites and organizations that are trustworthy, that are in line with you theologically. Ask your leaders in your church. Ask your Bible study leaders. If there's something you're not quite sure about, grab somebody else and say, hey, I saw this thing. It looks really interesting. Will you look into it with me? You will sharpen each other as you do this. One of you will see something that somebody else hasn't. And sometimes it is something that is proclaiming the gospel, and what a joy that is. But always measure it against this. Don't measure it against a human. Because we all can make mistakes. Definitely use people who you trust, but at the end of the day, come back to God's word as the standard to measure everything by. And if there are glaring things that are missing, then we can be pretty sure that it is false teaching and not the gospel. The problem is we can all testify ourselves that we know this in our heads, but the trouble is that in reality, it's very easy to get swept along with some new thing. So I'm getting older now, and it's very appealing to me to think, oh, I could get rid of all these wrinkles and this saggy kind of extra skin that's developing under my neck. Ah, oh, I can pay $200 and have some very nice cream that I can just put on five times a day and suddenly I'm going to look 25 again. That's very appealing, isn't it? If you are somebody who puts on a lot of weight when you have a baby, that would have been me, then it's very appealing to see a new diet pill that says, oh, you can lose 50 pounds overnight. Yes, please sign me up. Awesome. We laugh but we are all tempted by things of this nature, aren't we? Every single day, 
there is something that isn't quite true. We all know if somebody is asking for us to give them our bank account details for some amazing holiday in the Caribbean, that's probably not a great idea. We know these things, but just as these things in the world deceive us, so can things which pertain to be of Jesus. They can sound very familiar. They can sound very appealing. Good people can go to heaven. Well, that sounds like the gospel, kind of. Now, in the letter before this one, in 1 John 2, 18, John tells the people that he's writing to in this letter that it's the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So this Antichrist idea is not new in these three letters of John. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. But if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. The fact that these people went out from us implies that they were at one point part of these congregations. They were with the believers at one time. They were masquerading as believers themselves at one point or another. But now, John is talking about them as the deceivers, which is very far from walking in the truth. Now, when I was an undergrad in Cambridge, I joined a church where there was a pastor whose teaching was known around the world for being excellent in conservative evangelical circles. And I have to say, to date, he is still the best preacher I have ever heard. Just to be clear, I was an undergrad in Cambridge in England, not here in Massachusetts, just for anybody who was wondering. There were students who came from around the globe to study there. So the ministry of evangelical churches in that city was huge, and it had very, very far-reaching effects. This pastor lived with his wife and three children in Cambridge, and over the years, his ministry seemed to flourish and grow, and he had many, many opportunities to speak nationally and internationally on the gospel. The associate pastor at that church in Cambridge while I was an undergrad was an American, and he in time was called to pastor a church in Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill, where I went to work a number of years later. And these two men remained friends, and the pastor from Cambridge would come and speak at our church in Washington, D.C. And there was one very specific time when that happened, and my husband and I can remember the sermon distinctly that he preached. He came with his wife and his youngest son, who was still at home, and his PA. And during their stay, our pastor came over and he said, because we all knew them well, he said, I do not know what is going on. There is a tension here that nobody will explain, but something is not right. None of us could put our finger on it. It was very extraordinary. Their time to be in the U.S. came to an end. They went back to the U.K., and less than a month later, a scandal hit the newspapers, and this pastor from Cambridge had been living a double life for nearly all of his married life and came out as a homosexual. It rocked the evangelical world globally because all these people had become Christians under his ministry. It was absolutely devastating. He moved in with his boyfriend. He left his wife and his children. And now to this day, he heads up a homosexuality and faith organization. This is just 
the kind of thing that John is talking about here in this letter. He was in a shepherding role in a church for an extremely long time. He was viewed as somebody who could be trusted, yet he was living a life of deceit. And when his sin was discovered, he did not turn from it. He promoted some things which were truth, didn't he? But yet he deceived us all for a very long time in regards to his double life. But the even more tragic thing is that he is still doing that. John wants his readers to sit up and listen and to watch themselves. He is warning them. Let none of us be so arrogant as to think that something like this could not happen to us. May we watch ourselves. Why do they need to watch themselves? So that they don't lose what they've worked for, so that they may win a full reward. John is trying to keep them anchored in God's word and not heading out with the deceivers. He isn't talking about being able to lose their salvation if they truly are believers. We want to be really clear about that. We are not in danger of losing our salvation if we are truly regenerate. Please hear me when I say that. It would be very easy to read this verse in that light. We are going to sin until we die. Sorry, but we are. But it is possible to be deceived by those who are not truly regenerate when we are believers. So this is why John is pointing them to these commands over again. When we shift our eyes from God and his word, when we start to walk in a direction which isn't the truth, our lives begin to display characteristics which are not of God, just like my pastor from Cambridge. And it is very easy to get swept along by somebody talking a talk which sounds appealing, particularly if they are explaining that a specific sin which we are tempted to actually isn't a sin at all anymore. But this is not the truth of the gospel. The Bible is very clear on homosexuality. Believing that this is something that God promotes is not the truth of the gospel. It's deception. And this is why John has focused so much on walking in the truth and understanding what that truth is. He is helping this church to understand they must be submerged in God's word and the truth of the gospel in everything they do. Their feet need to step on the very words of the gospel so that they aren't deceived. Why is this so important to him and why is it so important for the church to understand it and for us to understand it? So that they don't lose sight of the reward. The reward of eternal life in verse 8. Jesus promises a full reward in heaven. He promises a life with him. Remember back to verse 2, that truth will be with us forever. I don't have an easy time wrapping my head around what forever means, but it's eternal. It is never going to end. That is good news, ladies. That is extremely good news. But they and we need to remember that eternal life is at stake 
here. So the effort of walking in the truth and walking according to God's commandments comes with a cost. It will be hard for you to speak out and say that you are a Christian sometimes. The Northeast is a hard place to do that. But the Lord has placed every single one of you in this room here for a reason. It will be hard to do that. It may come with great cost. It will require us to swim against the cultural tide. It will require us to stand up for what the Bible says is true, even when every single person around us refuses to do that. For some of us in this room, it might mean dying for what we believe in. We don't know. But it also comes with a great promise. A great promise. Because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, we are walking in the truth towards heaven. And it is not only something that we do alone, but look at John's wording in verse 8. So that you may not lose what we have worked for. This is a communal effort. Hooray, say all the extroverts in the room. Christians are working together, just like those Olympic teams that are working together. The church of believers, locally and globally, is headed towards the greatest reward we can possibly imagine. Just think about that for a second. We are headed, if we are believers, towards the greatest reward that we can possibly imagine. And Jesus showed the most sacrificial love by dying on the cross and rising again, taking on our sin so that we could win this full reward and live eternally in heaven with him. And it is possible only because of his sacrifice. We cannot do this on our own. If anybody tells you you can, they are telling you a lie. There is nothing we can do, no works that we can do that will justify us to get into heaven. It is only because of Jesus' sacrifice that this is possible. So honestly, ladies, when we think about that, the effort of walking in the truth, the cost that the Lord may call us to, is nothing in comparison to the cost that we see Jesus has made. So our response is to faithfully obey his commands. Because John explains, if they attempted to go with the deceivers, and we're going to look at this even more in our next talk, if they attempted to be deceived, then this reward is not going to be for them. If they follow the Antichrist, the person who denies Jesus, then heaven is not an option. Because they aren't following Jesus at all. They are following the opposite of Jesus. The only way to eternal life is through repentance and faith in Christ and him alone. The one true gospel. And this is the same for us. We need to be reminded of these things. We are quick to forget. If we are deceived and put our trust in those who don't profess Christ, who deny him, then we are not 
walking in the truth. We are not walking according to God's commandments. Our feet are not finding themselves to be walking in the very steps that we need to. They are not grounded in the words of the gospel, and they will not then, our lives will not display this loving sacrificially that we have talked about. We don't want to lose sight of Jesus. We are going to sin until we die. We are sinful people. But Christ has paid for our sins by walking in the truth, by loving one another, by watching ourselves and making sure that we aren't deceived. We can have this confidence in Christ and then we will inherit this amazing reward. And in the meantime, God has provided this family for you, this community for you to encourage one another, to love one another sacrificially until he calls each one of us home. God appoints leaders in our churches, men who are wise in God's word, who are godly so that they can shepherd the church to walk faithfully in gospel truths. All these things are put in place for us because God knows we need it so that we do not lose sight of them and so that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the full reward, the ultimate prize. Let's spend some time in our small groups praying that we would keep our eyes and our feet anchored in the truth of the gospel, in the truth of Jesus. Let's pray in our small groups that we would learn to love sacrificially in ways that we never have before because this is what Jesus commands us to do. Let's pray that we truly understand and desire to understand more deeply the truth of the gospel so we are not deceived. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are amazed at your provision and your love and your grace towards us in sending your son Jesus. And we ask that you would teach us how to abide in your truth, how to remain in it. Give us a desire to come to you and rest in your word and to know the truths of your gospel so that we can weigh up what is from you and what is not. Keep us anchored to you, Lord. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We praise and thank you for this reward which you have promised for us. And we think of faithful saints who we love, who are in glory already. And we think of people who will be there shortly. And we think of ourselves, Lord, we do not know the day that you are going to call each one of us. We don't know which day you are going to bless us with this final reward. But Lord Jesus, we want to stay faithful so that we can enjoy this reward with you in glory. Remind us of this, Lord, and we thank you for it. We have no words to truly express what that means, what that sacrifice meant 
on our behalf. We humbly cry out to you in thanks, Heavenly Father, because of your Son, Jesus. Amen.